You have no doubt enjoyed six sermons very recently from John 17. And in those sermons, we heard time and time again of the Lord's intercession for those who the Father gave him. And not only did we hear of Christ's intercession, but we also saw that prophetic promise of our sanctification that comes through the truth of the word. And these things are taking place. These prayers that Christ prayed have been answered and will be answered, and we can be very thankful for that. This morning, this afternoon, I guess now, we find ourselves back in Philippians, though. And this is where I've been. It's been a few months, but I turn your attention back to the epistle to the Philippians. You can turn there already. And this morning, this afternoon, I should say, we'll be going through verses 19 through 24 of chapter 2 in Philippians. And as you're turning there, I'd ask you to consider these words penned by A.W. Tozer. He writes this. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. What does this mean? This means that no church will outperform her view of God. Not only will no church do that, no individual will outperform his or her view of God. And I would submit to you that a church with a high view of God will demonstrate by her actions that high view. And the same can be said not only of the corporate gathering then, the church, but also of any individual believer with a high view of God. Now, uh, conversely, I guess, a church with anything less than a high view of God will also place then their ignoble, their inferior view of God on full public display. And again, the same applies not only to the church, but to any individual holding a less than honorable, honorable view of God. Simple verbal assent, where one says words that seem to profess a high view of God, maybe even a love for God, these types of words are meaningless unless accompanied by corporate and individual action. I would say sentiments fall flat. They're only sentiments. And this afternoon, friends, we should take note of this point as well. Each one of you will live out your theology practically. You'll put that on display. The well-known Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote this. He said, example is the most powerful rhetoric. Your actions will speak louder than your words. 
And yet, let's, let's admit then that we live in a world where claims about one's self land on deaf ears as action is altogether absent. We see this on a daily basis. Just people flapping their gums, but there's no substance to what they say. Well, that's not so with the Philippians. We know this. We know this because we see this in chapter 1 and verse 2. This is where Paul writes of the Philippians and their participation in the gospel. He's referring to tangible actions. These, these believers in Philippi are not just giving high fives and patting Paul on the back for his gospel ministry. No, this is a congregation with its sleeves rolled up. And they're actively in fellowship with, with Paul, even as he continues to languish in a Roman prison. And it's the exemplary participation of Timothy and Epaphroditus where we see this perhaps most vividly. Now, we'll get to that passage in just a moment, but consider this as well. I'm sure, I'm sure many of you, maybe even most of you, have at some point, if you're associated with Grace Life, if you're not just a visitor here this morning, but if you are... Uh, have been coming here for any length of time, perhaps you have identified yourself, introduced yourself to somebody else as, I'm from Grace Life. Grace Life is my church. Well, I want you to consider this from here on. Grace Life, the name Grace Life, has both theology and practice contained within it, right? Grace implies our theology, and life implies our practice, And so let those two never be found divorced in our lives. Every time that you mention the name Grace Life, you ought to, in the next moment, think, am I living out my theology practically? Is that visible? Because certainly in the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus, we see this on full display And so we'll look at this over the next two Sundays, this Sunday, this morning, this afternoon, I should say. We'll look at Timothy's life. And then next Lord's Day, we'll take a look at Epaphroditus. But a brief refresher would be in order here as well. I think it'll be helpful. So regarding this epistle that Paul has penned to the church in Philippi, we want to remember that he writes to express appreciation for a gift that they have sent his way. We see this in chapter 4 and verse 18 where he writes, I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, what you have sent. And no doubt he's referring to a monetary gift that was carried by Epaphroditus some considerable way, and this being only a part of their participation in Paul's gospel ministry. You see, yes, there was a monetary gift, but Epaphroditus stuck around for a while and served Paul even as he continued to be imprisoned. 
And we also see in this letter that he writes of his present circumstances under Roman imprisonment. And he does this while at the same time exhorting them to a joyful pursuit of Christ. You see, joy is one of the themes, if not the main theme of this epistle. And repeatedly, he refers to joy, the joy that they ought to be pursuing in Christ. And then this epistle also informs us of some of the things that the church in Philippi was facing. They certainly faced threat and persecution. They faced envy, strife, and selfish ambition from within. They were facing the onslaught of false teaching and false teachers. And they also, we are informed, they were also in They had their own material needs. And Paul reveals this to us through his letter to them as well. And so with Bible open now, let's just follow Paul's train of thought here. And I'll go through this quite briskly. The first 11 verses, we see Paul's greetings, expressions of joy and affection for the believers in Philippi and a prayer that he makes on their behalf. Then in verses 12 through 18, we learn of Paul's current situation. And we learn that the gospel is advancing even as he is chained. His imprisonment is serving to encourage others to speak the word of God without fear. And yet there are some that are preaching Christ with selfish motives. But in all, Paul is thankful because Christ is being proclaimed. And then verses 19 through 26, we see Paul continually rejoicing in Christ. While he's anticipating his release, he's yet torn between this eager longing that he has to be with Christ, to depart and be with Christ. For that's much better. And yet he has also a desire to remain and continue to serve the Philippian church and no doubt other churches that he has helped to plant. And you may recall, and this is well over a year ago now, this was the verse that we begun our time in Philippians with. In verse 27 of chapter 1, we see the primary command given by Paul to the believers. He says, only live as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And from that point on, really right to the end of chapter two, all that we'll read about is giving instruction on how to go about conducting oneself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so we can be thankful for the instruction that comes after and certainly the examples that are set before us. In verses 28 through 30 of chapter one, he exhorts them to fearlessly stand unified for the faith of the gospel. And he also points out that both salvation and suffering are grace gifts from God. They're given to us very purposefully. And then we see in verses one through four of chapter two, there's an exhortation towards unity. And this unity in fellowship that is fueled by each believer's humility. Now, we need to not just quickly gloss over this idea of fellowship. This letter is written to a corporate body. 
And so the instruction is how they are to conduct themselves, even as they are together. This isn't as they're individually operating in their own little worlds, but this is when they come together. And we see the importance of the corporate gathering expressed even in this letter to the Philippians. He gives us a definition for humility. He says, regard one another as more important than yourselves in verse three of chapter two. And then the rest of chapter two really is to provide us with four examples of Christian conduct, Christ-like conduct. We see firstly in in verses five through 11 of chapter two, there's the supreme example given to us. This is Christ's humility and obedience, ultimately leading to Christ's exaltation. In verses 17 and 18, we see Paul's apostolic example given to us to follow. And then in verses 19 through 24, where we'll be today, we see Timothy's pastoral example. And then next Lord's Day, We'll take a look at Epaphroditus. This is a lay person in the church and a very important example also to consider. And of course, tucked away inside of that, in verses 12 through 16, there's another command that's given subsequent to the command to conduct oneself in a manner worthy. There's an imperative there to work out one's salvation with fear and trembling. But this morning and again next week, we really want to observe the rubber meeting the road. The rubber meeting the road by way of Timothy's example and Epaphroditus' example. And so let's take a look and let's read verses 19 through 24 of chapter 2. Follow along with me, please. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. And so here in this text, we see Timothy living out his theology practically. We see him conducting himself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And this is why I have titled this sermon, Exemplars of Participation in the Gospel. We could add part one to that. And yet, as we approach these verses, I'd have to give you a warning in advance. These these verses will confront us. These verses will challenge us. Because I believe this, I believe that every Christ follower sitting here right now is represented by either Timothy or by Epaphroditus, each one of you. And so we want to then view this as a call to love 
a call to love God by loving the church. And we can also receive this as a call to action, a call to our action. And certainly, we can also view this as a call to arms because we are in a a state of spiritual warfare in our world. So these verses here, I would provide for you this, this argument. This is the purpose for these verses in Paul's letter. Paul sets forth the lives of two exemplary slaves of Christ Jesus so that you may evaluate the authenticity of your own participation in the gospel. Okay, I'll say that again. We have two exemplary lives that clearly demonstrate Christ-like or slave-like, I should say, submission to Christ. These are given, given to us. This, these slave-like examples of submission to Christ are given to us so that you may evaluate the authenticity of your own participation in the gospel. Today we'll spotlight on Timothy, and if you're taking notes, then there's a three-part outline that I have here. First, we'll see the attitude of participation in verses 19 through 21, the attitude of participation. And then we'll see participation in affliction in verse 22. And then finally, in verses 23 and 24, we'll see the ambition of participation. So we've got attitude, affliction, and ambition. And then next Sunday, we'll follow the same outline, but this time with Epaphroditus. So let's consider first the attitude of participation, the attitude. And let's take a look again at verses 19 through 21. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. We see Paul here expressing a hope, a hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy soon to Philippi. We need to just pause briefly here and make three quick observations. First of all, Paul's using this term hope here again. He references hope, and this is a Christian hope. This isn't as the world views hope. This isn't Paul's wishful thinking. No, rather, this is a hope that is certain. It's made certain in Christ. So he confidently intends to send Timothy. We should understand that. Secondly, Christ is the grounds for Paul's hope. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. His hope is based on his relationship with and his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, we need to also infer something here from Paul's role in the church in Philippi. You see, he is chained to a Roman guard presently. He is under house arrest where he's allowed to have company come in. Even Timothy and Epaphroditus are attending to him. And yet we see the apostle continually and faithfully 
administrating over certain matters concerning the church in Philippi. And here, specifically, we see his effort in desiring to encourage and exhort believers by sending envoys their way. And so let's also realize that this isn't necessarily the natural response of man when in affliction, to think of others ahead of oneself. But this is what we see in Paul's heart. And oh, that we had Paul's heart, dear brothers and sisters. It's not not so that amid the most difficult of our afflictions, that our minds would rather be set on our brothers and sisters, that our minds would rather be set on the church and the furtherance of the gospel rather than on the afflictions, the trials, the tribulations that we find ourselves in currently. Well, that's the way Paul rolls. That's the way he operates. And we see this consistently in his ministry. And not only Paul, but Timothy as well. Timothy is of like mind. And there are two reasons for Paul's devotion, really, for the church in sending Timothy. First of all, we see that it's for the sake of his own encouragement because he anticipates that Timothy will return and that he will return with a report from the believers in Philippi and that he would be encouraged as a result of what he hears from Timothy. But there's a second reason as well for Paul's deciding to and, and really being determined to send Timothy to Philippi. And this is that he knows his young protege well. He knows that Timothy will serve the church effectively because he has their spiritual interests and their spiritual welfare in mind. This is what's paramount in Timothy's heart as well. But let's consider who is Timothy? How does Paul know this to be true about Timothy? How can we know about Timothy? That this is really what will happen as he arrives in Philippi. Well, let's consider a little bit about Timothy's life. First of all, he appears before us in Acts chapter 16 for the first time. This is during Paul's second missionary journey. Paul has himself in Lystra, Lystra, and there he meets a young Timothy. This is approximately AD 51. Now, the text in Acts 16 goes on to mention that Timothy's father is Greek. Not much else is known about his father, except we know that his father was likely responsible or behind at least one decision that was made for Timothy in his life, and that to not be circumcised. That gets changed later, even as he desires to um, witness effectively among the Jews. But for the time being, when Timothy is first met by Paul, he is uncircumcised. This likely because his father was Greek and did not see that to be necessary. Timothy's mother, on the other hand, was Jewish. And not only was she Jewish, but there's more that we know about her. We know that she was also the spiritual influence in Timothy's life. How do we know this? Well, for that, we go to Paul's letter 
in 2 Timothy, written to Timothy, there's a couple of clues that lead us to understand the significant role that Timothy's mother played in his life. We see in 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul writes, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. I am sure that it is in you as well. And then he goes on to say a little further in that same letter, you, Timothy, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. That being in chapter three and verses 14 and 15. And so we see our first application really this morning. And that is an application that's given to our parents, to each and every father and mother in attendance here, that you would be taking that role seriously to spiritually influence your children by bringing them before the scriptures, by reading to them from the scriptures, and by explaining those very same scriptures to them as the way of life. Well, Timothy ultimately was not saved under his mother. However, we know that he was converted under Paul's gospel ministry there in Lystra. We see this articulated in 1 Corinthians 4.17, where Paul writes in reference to Timothy, he says, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. I'll say more about that in just a bit, but understand that This is really an indication that Timothy came to genuine saving faith even as Paul administered the gospel in his second missionary journey. And from that point forward, he accompanied Paul in his ministry. He served as Paul's envoy going wherever the apostle would send him. And over the Over much of the next 13 or 14 years, Timothy was with Paul. How do we know this? Well, we can can glean this understanding just based on him, Timothy, being named as one of the co-writers of the various epistles that were sent out by Paul. We see that Timothy is listed as a co-writer in six of those. In First and Second Thessalonians, which was written in the early 8050s, in Second Corinthians, and the three letters that were written from in prison, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And those letters being penned somewhere around 8062. So we've got letters that are spanning roughly an 11-year period of time, and no doubt, Timothy was a close and probably a constant companion of Paul's, with the exception of when Paul would send him out to do his work in ministry. And so we find Timothy here in Rome currently, as he's listed as a co-writer of this epistle to the Philippians. 
And we see Timothy sharing in Paul's imprisonment. He is there with Paul. He is serving. He is at his side. And based on what I've just mentioned, I think that there's much that can already be inferred about Timothy, about his character. We would say that certainly this is a submissive young man, even as he is operating under the authority of the Apostle Paul. And he's a teachable young man, likely a sponge who is sitting under Paul and sitting at his feet. And he's also a faithful character. He's a faithful friend. He's a faithful brother in Christ who just simply desires to participate in the gospel ministry. Now, Paul has more to say by way of description here, and we can see more of Timothy's attitude, this attitude necessary for participation in the gospel. And so we pick up here in verse 20 then, and we read, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. This term, kindred spirit, that that Paul uses, this is a compound term. Iso means equal, right? We have the isosceles triangle that has two equal sides. We see earlier in chapter 2 where Paul uses the word iso to... um, to to demonstrate that Christ did not view equality, iso, theos, equality with God, a thing to be grasped. And here, iso, suchan, literally means that Paul is of equal soul. He is of equal spirit with Paul. These men are like-minded. And not only does he give us that detail, but then he goes on to say that there's no one else in Rome whose soul is as close to his own as this like-minded young Timothy. You see, Timothy shares in Paul's desires, in his feelings, in his emotions, in his passion for gospel ministry. He shares Paul's heart for the church. And we know this to be true Because it's even expressed that way, it's illustrated for us in 1 Corinthians 4 and verses 16 and 17, where Paul makes mention of Timothy as he sends him to Corinth, to the church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 4, we read, as Paul writes, Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. And so we see the one, the equal souled Timothy being described as a person who will remind you of my ways. You see, the two have the exact same goal in mind. The nature of Timothy's concern, his heart for Philippi, matches Paul's. His sincere care and attention that he will provide to the believers in Philippi with regards to their spiritual health and progress, these will mirror identically 
the apostles. And Paul describes Timothy's attitude with even greater clarity in the next verse. We read in verse 21, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Interesting. He doesn't seek after the things concerning himself. That's not the nature of Timothy's character. Timothy's devotion is serious. It's his primary objective, the thing which Timothy strives for most, the thing that he seeks to obtain are the very things of Christ. That sounds like Paul, doesn't it? It seems like Paul has done a pretty good job of replicating himself in Timothy. And yet let's also note this. No rivalry exists between Paul and Timothy, right? Where we see in the modern day church and even in the church in Philippi, rivalries existing. That's not to be said of the relationship in ministry between Paul and Timothy. That can't be said about those others, some of those others in Rome For they all seek after their own interests, Paul says, not those of Christ Jesus. And so really what Paul is effectively doing here is disqualifying for the time being, he's disqualifying others who who he knows in Rome. They to him will be no use as envoys given their current state. We read about some of these in chapter one and verses 15 through 17, where Paul writes, Some were preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. How could anyone described that way have a first and primary focus on the church of Christ in Philippi? That would be an impossibility. Too busy being self-interested. Too busy having the spotlight on self. But the same cannot be said about Paul's prodigy. Timothy did nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarded others as more important than himself. We see this in his willingness to go. At Paul's command, he will go. He didn't merely look out for his personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We see him doing this exact thing, even as he is with Paul, as Paul remains imprisoned. Timothy had this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus. He was a humble servant, a humble slave. And he demonstrated Christ-like humility and obedience in his participation in the gospel with Paul. We know this to be true. Now, one commentator writes this upon reflecting on Timothy's gospel participation. He says this, such godly transparent interest in the welfare of others is a thing of beauty. And we would say, yes, certainly. This is a thing of beauty. And yet, We live in an age of unprecedented self, of weightless souls consumed by their own gravity. And not only that, but we know that distortions 
distortions have found their way into the church, into even the local churches. The same commentator exposes as unbiblical foolishness this popular notion. You've no doubt heard it. We cannot love others until we love ourselves. What hogwash. What a lie from the pit of modern secular psychology. It couldn't be further from the truth. How do we know that? Well, we see that demonstrated in the life of Christ, in the life of Paul, in the life of Timothy, in the life of Epaphroditus. And you no doubt have seen it in the lives of many of those that even surround you here. Considering others as more important than yourselves and not spending time just simply looking in the mirror, self-focused. This is Timothy's attitude, his pure desires, his emotions and feelings towards the believers in Philippi is with a heart that is identical to Paul's. He looks forward to caring for and, and he's ready to attend to their needs while at the same time displaying the attitude of Christ. Friend, do you share Timothy's love for the church? Do you share Timothy's love for the brothers and sisters in Christ? Not only here, but on the other side of Canada and around the world. Are you concerned for their welfare? Are you interested in their lives spiritually? And not only are you interested, but then are you eager and ready to serve wherever you're deployed? Are you you able to be deployed? Maybe it's another question that needs to be asked. Are you fit for deployment in this moment? If a leader from the church would come up to you Are you able and available in this moment to go and serve others spiritually or emotionally or physically? Setting yourself aside. Are you ready? Well, we know with Paul and his discipleship of Timothy, even being prepared requires a large investment on the part of another, right? That you would come under someone's mentorship. That that person would invest an incredible amount of energy and effort and time into your life. And that person themselves doing so selflessly. It's grueling and yet extremely rewarding work. If you enjoy a relationship currently, like the one that we see Paul and Timothy enjoying? Do you have someone mentoring you? Are you someone's Timothy? Or is somebody mentoring you? I should say, are you mentoring someone else? Is what I should say. Do you have Timothy's? Are you someone's Paul? These are questions that need to be asked. Now, 
What if the answer to both of those questions is no? It couldn't be. And the reason is that if you don't have anything to give, then you have much to receive, right? And so you're in in one of those two places. You're either in need of being a Paul to someone or you're in need of being a Timothy to someone. What's What's preventing that? That's a question to ask. Well, we've seen the necessary attitude demonstrated by the life of Timothy for participation in the gospel ministry, in this case, Paul's gospel ministry. Let's then secondly look at participation in affliction. Participation in affliction. We'll pick it up in verse 22. But you know of his proven worth that he, Timothy, serves me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. We know, based on what Paul writes here, that Timothy is known to the believers in Philippi, likely from Paul's third missionary journey when twice he passed through Philippi. And whether Timothy was with him in those moments or had passed by before or after, no doubt, Timothy accompanied um, Paul on his third missionary journey and was then known to the Philippians because he had been there and likely a few times. Not only did they know him, but they, they knew something of him. They knew of his proven character. They knew of his proven worth. But how should we come to understand this Proven worth. What does this mean? Well, proven worth means that Timothy has been tested. You see, to be proven worthy means that you have gone through a time of testing. Otherwise, you can't be proven to have been worthy. How do we know that that Timothy has been tested? Well, there's a couple of indications. First of all, We see it in the language here that Paul is using, dokimane, dokimane, which refers to the experience of going through a test with the result especially in mind. And so the translators of the NAS have rendered this proven worth. But this is a term that is really pregnant with meaning. This is a describing a process of enduring something that amounts to a test that both validates and promotes the character of the one undergoing it. And not only undergoing it, but having come out the other side of it. And this is Timothy. This is describing Timothy. Now, this term that Paul uses here is re- it's derived from a, another adjective, dakamas, which means to test or to approve. And this term is primarily used to describe the process that metals go through as they are sent through fire and dross is burned off and only what is pure remains behind. This is the test that Timothy has gone through. This is the test that has shown him to be of proven 
worth. We see Paul use this term in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 13, where we read, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. The question then could be asked, what exactly was the test? The testing that Timothy had already experienced. Well, Paul sheds light on this, Timothy's testing, in the letter that he writes to him, 2 Timothy 3 and verses 10 and 11. 2 Timothy 3, 10 and 11, where Paul writes to Timothy, now you, Timothy, followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of all of them, the Lord rescued me. Timothy was there to experience this. He followed after Paul in these things. He himself, no doubt, persevered through persecutions and sufferings, no doubt, as he was witness to Paul's ministry and even locked arms with him, he himself experienced the very same persecution at times. And we have to admit, many would flee, right? Many would flee from this situation. We even see Jesus' disciples flee in the midst of his suffering as he's heading to the cross. They don't decide to stick around. They flee. And yet, Timothy chooses to remain with Paul for almost 15 years. He is a faithful servant, a faithful co-laborer of Paul's in gospel ministry. And I can't help but be reminded of Romans chapter 5 here. Romans chapter 5, the Verses 3 through 5 really describe the process that Timothy has gone through, even as he has witnessed Paul's ministry. Paul writes in Romans 5, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. There's that term, proven worth, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. It's certain. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This describes exactly Timothy's experience. And those who have endured through much for the sake of Christ are no doubt of huge encouragement to others, are they not? When you know that somebody has gone through the fire of testing and has come out of the, on the other side of it because God has brought them through that. No doubt, having Timothy visit would be of tremendous encouragement to the Philippians. They know what he's been through. I think of so many folks, so many folks that have met our own dear pastor So many folks that have met so many of us 
that have, have received so much encouragement because they know the trial that James has been through. They know the trial that this church has been through. Just as they, the Philippians would have known the trials that Timothy endured and remained faithful to Christ first and foremost. They've encouraged the, these people that we've encountered, these people that have sought out James to thank him for his faithful stand for Christ. They've been encouraged further to speak the word of God without fear. And we can be thankful for that. Why is this? Is it because of the man? No, not because of the man. It's because of Christ. Because of Christ. What, because of what Christ has done in the man and for the man. And it's the message of Christ, the gospel, then that needs to go forth so that other people can experience that same thing. It's because of Christ. It's because the love of God has been poured out within their hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to them. Let's not miss that in Romans 5. That is the basis for all that the Christian goes through, for all that the Christian suffers through. And Timothy's proven worth, we also know, was directly related to the furtherance of the gospel. You see, the world will not come up against us for any other reason but for the gospel. Nothing else. Now look again at verse 22, if you will. He served with me, Paul writes. This verb that Paul uses here, served, comes from the word doulos, which we know well. This is a, the term that refers to slave. This is slave language being used here. And literally, we could render this as Timothy performed the work of a slave with me. And again, Paul, in writing about Timothy, he wants us to recognize Timothy's Christ-likeness by referring to him in this way, by describing his work in this way. Why would we say that? Well, we know this even from verse 7 of chapter 2, because Jesus himself took on the form of a slave. And so what Timothy is doing in appearance, but not only in appearance, in his Work ethic is that that simply mirrors Christ. He slaved with me in the furtherance of the gospel. The spiritual son slaving alongside his spiritual father. And this isn't just the generic term for son that Paul uses here either, which is weos. Rather, this is technon. This is Language that's indicative of being a direct offspring. Let's understand that. This is begotten type of language. This means that Timothy's spiritual bloodline flows from Paul. They have the same spiritual DNA. This is what characterizes Timothy. And this is what characterizes Timothy's participation with Paul as he aids in the furtherance of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which is being advanced. 
but not without affliction. But the affliction was necessary because it fostered Timothy's proven worth so that he could go to Philippi and encourage the believers. And so we've seen both Timothy's attitude of in participation and we've seen the affliction that he shared in as well in that participation of the gospel. Now, finally, let's take a look at the ambition of participation. The ambition behind participation. And this is found in verses 23 and 24. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me and I trust in the Lord that I myself will be coming shortly. That I myself also will be coming shortly. Now, this ambition is really wrapped up in this very first word here, therefore. It really finishes this entire paragraph on Timothy by, by shedding light on, or by really putting the spotlight on all that's already been said. Timothy will remain serving Paul while under Roman imprisonment until such a time as permits that he would then make the roughly 40-day journey from Rome to Philippi. He's not going to do that until Paul's circumstances are made clear, until Paul knows what the result of his imprisonment will be, until he knows more certainly his future legally. But as soon as that occurs, then he will dispatch Timothy And Timothy will be able to bring that report then to Philippi so that they can be encouraged in that as well. And so what is the ambition here that Timothy demonstrates? I would say that he's demonstrating the ambition of just simply making himself available and ready at a moment's notice. This is is his ambition, that he is available, that he has made himself available to serve Paul while in chains and not only made himself available for that, but if that changes in a moment, then he's made himself available and willing to travel to Philippi as soon as the conditions are conducive for that trek to take place. Friend, are you available for participation in the gospel? Are you ready Are you ready as Timothy is ready? Ready in the sense that you are now already actively serving and just waiting for that opportunity when that service can be extended beyond where you're already serving. Are you at the disposals of the leaders here at Grace Life? Are you ready for them to assign you a task to be deployed? Are you someone that leaders would think of to be suitable for participation in the gospel in this way? You have to consider this carefully. And if not, if the answer to that question is is no, then why not? What can be done then to prepare you for participation in the furtherance of the gospel here through Grace Life into Alberta and wherever that takes you beyond. How can you be prepared in that? We know that there's plenty of opportunity to serve in this church. 
There are plenty of ministries that are looking for people to serve alongside within these ministries for the sake of the gospel. And yet, there's likely some that are coming and just merely being a consumer on the Lord's Day. You're you're coming here, and apart from the Lord's Day, you're not actively involved. You're not connected. You're not tethered to the church. You're missing out on that fellowship that's essential, even as is expressed in Paul's letter here. He's constantly talking about unity. And yet you find yourself outside of that unity. It doesn't have to be that way. But I would say this, in order to first effectively participate in the gospel ministry, one must have first been effectually transformed by that same gospel. That's requirement. So, If you want to live a life that will not be viewed as wasted, there's no better way, no better step that you could take right now to come before the Lord, to confess your sin to him, to seek his forgiveness, not based on anything that you've done, not based on your works, but based on what Christ has already done on the cross to trust in his death and what that means, to look to his resurrection, to trust in the work of Christ, to not go on sinning, to not continue separated from the Father, but rather to be reconciled to him through Christ. And then to take that, to take that, And share that with the world. To proclaim that same gospel. To participate together with the church in gospel ministry. You need to be saved. John Piper wrote a book, Don't Waste Your Life. Don't Waste Your Life. And I'm just going to borrow the title. Because I feel, I sense, I know, I know for certain that a life not surrendered to Christ is a wasted life on this earth. It doesn't have to be that way, friend. And we see the strength that only God provides because we see in the tradition of the church, in church history, we see the outcome of Timothy's life. We read about it in Fox's Book of Martyrs, which recounts the tradition passed on through the centuries. There was a time in AD 97 or thereabouts where the pagans had gathered to celebrate a feast of sorts to their pagan gods. And Timothy, in a moment of passion, no doubt brought on by his fervent love for Christ and his desire to evangelize, reproved the pagans for their ridiculous idolatry. No doubt calling on them to repent. Well, this group of people became exasperated. It, in fact, riled up an anger in them such that he came under the fiercity of their clubs 
and they beat him within an inch of his life. And then a few days later, he succumbed to that horrendous beating. But he lived out his theology practically. His was not a wasted life by any means. In fact, we know the Lord used him mightily. And we see that here in our text. So remember grace life. Grace implies theology. Life implies practice. And let us never mention that name without thinking. Am I living out my theology today? Am I doing that? Because I submit to you again, each one of you will live out your theology. And yet, none of you will rise above your theology. You won't outperform it. In closing, I'd like to read a paragraph from Calvin as he responds really to Timothy's life of ministry. This is what he writes. Whithersoever Christ calls you, you must promptly go, leaving off all other things. Your calling ought to be regarded by you in such a way that you shall turn away all your powers of perception from anything that would impede you. It might be in your power to live elsewhere in greater opulence, but God has bound you to the church, which affords you but a modest sustenance. You might elsewhere have more honor, but God has assigned you a situation in which you live in a humble style. You might elsewhere have a more healthy sky or a more delightful region, but it is here that your station is appointed. You might wish to have a more humane people. You feel offended with their ingratitude or barbarity or pride. In short, you have no sympathy with the disposition or manners of the nation in which you are, but you must struggle not with them, but with yourself to do violence in a manner to opposing inclinations that you may keep by the trade you have got. For you are not free or at your own disposal. Finally, forget yourself. Forget yourself if you would serve God. This, I think, wonderfully summarizes the life of Timothy. Next week, we'll take a look at the life of Epaphroditus. Let's pray. Well, Father, again, we are so thankful for your word. So thankful for the description of the life of Timothy found here in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And Father, we know that we can take great encouragement from it. It can put wind in our sails. And certainly, at the same time, it can challenge us. For your word teaches, it reproves, it corrects and trains us in righteousness. 
And no doubt it has had that effect this morning, this afternoon, in all of us. And so, Father, I pray that you would that you would increase our desire and that we would be responsive, that we would put our hands to the plow and that it would be our desire to live out our days as Timothy demonstrates, a life that's only made possible by the saving work of Christ in our lives. Oh, Father, enable us to this end and for your glory we pray. Amen.